Hello, and thank you for listening to Let the Right Films and a podcast. This is the first in our year of episodes doing a double feature of from the Criterion channel every month. Uh, these are not double features as curated by Criterion because they obviously do that. These are two movies that we pick ourselves um, that connect for any number of reasons that we'll probably get into. I am uh, your co-host Tyler Hannon and with me as always superstar Kayla St. Ange. Kayla, how's it going? Are you excited? I am. This is like, I'm not going to lie. It's nice to have like a direction (laughs) and like a bit (laughs) for the podcast. It makes it a lot easier. Like earlier today when we were trying to decide what we were going to do for next month's episode, it was so easy to come up with three ideas right away instead of just like reaching into the void for movies to talk about. And a little bit of structure and some limits will go a long way, it turns out. It just helps you focus, you know. And the movies we're focusing on today are... Uh, the 1983 film The Hunger and the 1978 film Eyes of Laura Mars. Not the eyes, just Eyes of Laura Mars. Kayla, why don't you kick us off by telling us a bit about The Hunger? Sarah Roberts is in jeopardy. Hey, lady. How about it? Stay with her. Help her. For she has begun to feel the awful horror of The Hunger. John Blaylock. The hunger has given him everlasting life. Until now, pray for him. Miriam Blaylock. She feeds one day in seven on the unsuspecting, and soon she will turn into something that you will never be able to forget. No matter how hard and how long you try, fear her. What have you done to me? Forever and ever. Life signs terminate, right? So as Tyler said, The Hunger is a Tony Scott-directed movie from 1983. It stars Catherine Deneuve, David Bowie, and Susan Sarandon. And the basic premise of the movie is that Catherine Deneuve is an ageless, beautiful vampire who selects a new companion every 200 or 300 years when the old one starts to rapidly age and turn into a dust bat. This process has started to happen quicker and quicker, and she has been researching a scientist played by Susan Sarandon who studies the effects of sleep on aging in the hopes that she can help her with this problem. However, as she becomes more focused on Susan Sarandon's character, she decides that this is the person that she wants to turn and that they can figure all of that out later. (laughs) And that's, you know, that's honestly the basic gist of the movie plot. We can get into some of the differences from the novel that it's based on by Whitley Strieber. And yeah, so I would say firstly about this movie that it is gorgeous. It is shot like every 80s, 90s, like weird goth dream music video. But you can tell that Tony Scott has a real eye for this kind of, I don't know, counterculture, I guess. The movie literally opens with Bauhaus performing Bella Lugosi's Dead, which is also uh, how they were discovered as a band and how they started their career. And when you have a timeless and honestly ageless beauty like Catherine Deneuve as your immortal vampire queen uh, you're just you know you're you're going 
Right, right off the bat. <laughs> um, we actually have briefly discussed this movie on the podcast before because when I initially found out about this movie when I was working at the video store a couple of years ago, it was out of print and really hard to find. And so I tracked on the book and read the book and the book is very different from the movie. It's a lot more dense and it has a lot more character work in it. And I definitely think that my first watch of the movie suffered from having so much of that context, to be honest, and that it was a much more pleasant viewing experience this time around without having all of these like preconceived notions and ideas of where the story should go and how it should develop. It's a pretty brisk 97 minutes. It, it feels like it should be, I think part of what caught me by surprise the first time I watched it and what kind of still does now is I almost expect it to play out for longer. And even at the end, um, I feel like there's a whole movie's worth of not quite cat and mouse, but this romantic hunt of a sort between cat, like a, between the uh, two two women just kind of surprised there isn't more seduction to it she kind of uh, Catherine Deneuve's uh, Miriam as you said really is just like I'll figure it out later you know I'm just gonna like seduce her and turn her and then you know it's like she'll adjust we'll be fine one of the things I think is really interesting about this movie is that it ends kind of just like it should be getting started um, and the fact that the ending makes literally no sense. So the problem with that is that this famously had a studio step in and rewrite the movie because they were so sure that they had a hit on their hands that they wanted to account for the possibility of sequels and a cinematic universe and all of this great stuff. And also, I guess, at one point floated the idea of like a follow-up TV series that kind of follows the character of Sarah in her new vampire life. It's one of those things where, again, it's difficult to divorce it from the context of having read the novel because in the novel when this seduction happens and the turning happens, what then follows is 200 pages of another really interesting psychological battle between this, these two women where the character of Sarah is using all of her scientific know-how and all of the research that she's been doing for the past years of her life to try and reverse what she very much sees as a curse and something that she did not ask for and that she wants no part of. And Miriam kind of trying to one, convince her that this is a good idea and also deal with, um, the character of John, who, yes, becomes a decrepit, like, banshee, basically, but continually is, like, breaking out and murdering people in alleys and, like, you know, just basically causing problems. So when I was looking at this movie kind of more by itself, watching it this time, all I could think about was how it, it is a really tight 90 minutes. And if you excised everything after Susan Sarandon's character stabbing herself to try and, you know, get out of being a vampire, it makes a really compelling, like, pilot episode of something. You know, like, I could see this very much nowadays being a dark and gritty HBO series or something where the first episode is this kind of whole setup where you have this very atmospheric queer seduction and you have, you know, I don't know, big name David Bowie music artist, like having this kind of glorified cameo role. And then from there you can kind of get to the rest of the story. Unfortunately, that's just like not what happens here. I'm curious how your thoughts uh, aged on it. Well, say so you put that a little better than I did and gave some perspective to, um, man, I'm finding all kinds of parallels that I did not realize we were going to have with the, uh, 
Eyes of Laura Mars, uh, second, you know, the second part of our double feature, but I won't dive into those too much yet. But you feel that part missing, I guess. It feels like something's missing and that there is space for it. And so it's that, like what you describe kind of like it doesn't have like that exact thing doesn't have to be what's missing, but it does feel like there needs to be more between these two. I think it still works on a certain like just like mood level like if like the ending doesn't really make sense and i think we lose out of the potential potential for a lot of like tension between the two there's not a lot of tension between miriam and sarah because basically the way the movie's structured sarah's smart she figures out what's up and she basically tries to kill herself as soon as she figures out what's up and like she has this like really well-developed profession as this researcher into aging and sleep and stuff. And it's used as a parallel to the Miriam and in part John story for the first half, a lot of cross-cutting between the two, including like direct parallels between what the monkeys are doing to each other and between what Miriam and John are doing to each other are going through. But then that ultimately doesn't have any impact once John exits the picture because really in this movie we don't see Miriam actually apply any of those things which is something we lost in the translation from the book it's just like that that it feels like there's something missing there and like I don't want to like I don't need books or like movies and books to like follow each other to the letter of the law at all but they I, I didn't feel like they replaced it with anything and so it ends right. up being like a really cool movie, like a really cool mood and it looks really good and it's really like incredibly sensual, um, but not as fulfilling as I kind of expect it to be. Mm-hmm. I, I went back and I listened to the the bit where we talked about it previously on an episode. And at the time, what I said was I've never been more disappointed because I had so many expectations of what this movie should be after reading the book. And I don't know, but I I did find a couple of interesting things in the film that I didn't think were in the book as much. So one of the things that I was thinking about kind of throughout the entire first half of the movie is how it's typically in society very much like a woman's problem to worry about aging and to be kind of like afraid of that, I guess, in a way. And I do think it's really interesting how that is just immediately removed from Miriam's plate, like right off the bat. Like just it's set up, she doesn't age, the other ones eventually will, she doesn't have to worry about it. Because I feel like when we talk about the mythos of the vampire and its existence, it usually kind of always boils down to a fear of death, a fear of, you know, not wanting to experience whatever is beyond. It's very much always seen in classic vampire stories as selling your soul so that you don't have to worry about that. And there's something really sinister about you know, somebody selling that same thing to you. And then 200 years later being like, Ooh, just kidding. Um, you're going to turn into a fruit bat now and I'm going to put you in a box. And, but at the same time, it kind of is exactly the kind of like sociopathic behavior that you would expect from somebody who's been alive for thousands of years, because in that kind of time frame, it's like a blink of an eye to spend a hundred years with somebody. And you can't explain that to anyone and the 
plane that Miriam is clearly operating on is so foreign and different. And it kind of taps into a lot of, I think, fears that society has on like an independent woman or on a woman who is outside of, you know, the, the system that she is meant to be controlled by. And there is one section in the book kind of where John is, you know, recounting how they met and talking about how at first he could not believe how this woman like talked to him or looked at him because they met in the 1800s. And I would love to see more of that kind of dealt like to see that more delved into the kind of idea of a woman who has existed outside of time and outside of society for almost all of civilized history and like what her brain would be like and like what her thought process would be like when entering relationships with people because I think it's so simplified of her just seeing like oh this is an interesting person I will now take them because like John is an interesting choice because he's like kind of a grubby well he's not grubby he's like aristocrat like he's an he's an aristocrat but by like her standards he must be kind of like a grubby dude from the 1800s and then you have Alice who is a child that she's teaching violin to and you can kind of see the thought process there like oh she's much younger so maybe she'll last longer and like I was when I was trying to think of like the links between her different romantic partners it just kind of came I I was like is there like a is it a bisexuality thing? Is it like a kink thing? Is it, you know, uh, um, something like dirty and wrong because she's like interested in a child? And I kind of landed on just like, no, she's so old and so bored that she's just like flinging about trying to find whichever person will keep her entertained for longest. And that's like the ultimate spider prey move. See, there is an element of like, so... I think one thing that's kind of the like it might sound backhanded when I say this, but it's kind of to the movie's benefit is it doesn't really get into her psychology much. It hints at it like with what it would take for someone to do this and all, but like you can kind of paint your own picture of what her psychology might be. Cause to me, it seemed like she was, she's just terrified of being alone in a sense, just because like when uh, Sarah stabs herself uh, Miriam is despondent like she's horrified she like she's like just hit with such grief that she's lost this person that she hasn't like she's known many lovers and it's not that she doesn't care about this person but it's like why why is this one person like the one and it's like is the prospect of waiting even a couple days I guess that's where maybe some more insight would have been helpful in that is it because it's Sarah or is it because just that was the one person and now she has no one also um the the child alice from the book that that's a sexual relationship because that's not a thing i picked up on at all like in the movie it seems like she's a neighbor girl that she's teaching like how to play uh violin because like the the parents of the girl are looking for her when she disappears it's uh so here's the deal um she's it's not sexual yet but the the implication is very much that like alice is meant to be john's replacement Oh, that, okay. That makes sense. And then John gets, okay. Gotcha. I guess I, I guess I could have picked up on that within the movie that she's like grooming this child. Like otherwise, was, why is the, why is uh, this kid there? So the deal with Alice basically is that it's very much, I think explicitly stated in the book and implied in the movie that she is meant to be John's replacement, whether or not that implies later a sexual relationship or not. I'm not sure, but I think in the movie that overwhelming loss that we see from Miriam is very much like she lost John quicker than she intended to. She had a replacement lined up and John killed her because he was jealous. And so she had to kind of on the fly choose 
a companion that she thought based on like what she had experienced would understand and like be enthusiastic about it and immediately she was just like no fuck you like (laughs) stab in neck I don't want to be a part of this and again I think it, it definitely is that total like loneliness and fear of being completely alone that you mentioned yeah that's fascinating and and i will say the ending i guess leaping to the ending a bit but like it's 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 funny that even back in like what what is this the early the mid 80s making like studios have always been making the mistake of uh planning for sequels and ruining the movie like the first movie just i I will say like the ending is like gibberish and doesn't make sense at all but it does look good we didn't totally established this but sarah does like miriam basically tells sarah what's up sarah pretends to be into it for half a second and then stabs herself in the neck with the yonk and then bleeds out and miriam despondent takes her upstairs there's a earthquake the something uh the mummies like her former lovers all rise up and like start groping for her and she's what's the word hysterical and yeah. she falls down several flights of like uh, falls down several floors, and I guess that kills her. And she ate like she ages like a huge. I, I she got the vampire knocked out of her. That's what happened. Got I don't the know. Vampire this, knocked the, out of her. The ending of this movie looks again like so. The entire movie kind of looks like a music video, which makes sense considering it's Tony Scott. But uh, the ending in particular, I could just like feel like that there should be like a heavy rock song playing in the background as all this happened but yeah it's total nonsense and it's such a bummer too because if they chose to end on Susan Sarandon stabbing herself in the neck and then she takes her up to the box and is like well now I must continue on that's a good ending it's even shocking though, like yeah even though the movie is still in my opinion like short and a little bit lacking on plot that at least is a bold artistic decision to be like the hero of this movie is now dead the villain will continue on and this cycle will probably repeat over and over again throughout millennia think about that (laughs) and like even then they could have done a sequel but i just really wanted to have oh it's so silly that's the problem too is that it also makes so so the other part is so after they have locked the skeleton catherine deneuve in her own box um we then see susan sarandon with like a harem of younger girls on a balcony and it's like well she wouldn't have embraced being a vampire because she super didn't want to be a vampire and it's just it's really bizarre and it's probably one of the most egregious studio intercut endings that i've ever seen maybe but i could see that oh so sorry just go ahead keep going i was just gonna say one um One thing that I did think was really interesting about the ending as is, is that it kind of reminded me very much of a typical noir movie where you have your femme fatale getting her comeuppance and being punished for her bad behavior in a way that like firmly proves that she was in the wrong the entire time. And it kind of detracts from this thought that I had earlier where I was like, oh, it's such an interesting choice to make it so that the woman doesn't have to worry about aging, blah, blah, blah. I'd be like, just kidding. At the very end, we're still going to punish her for being terrible. Don't worry. Yeah, just, just uh, tough all around. And like, you, you could, I could, there could be a way where you could even earn the Susan Sarandon takes over for her ending. You'd have to get there in a different way, but like, there's absolutely, like she does, we don't have any time for her to even reckon with like the morality of being a vampire really and so it's this weird like heroic beat where like we're supposed to be happy because you know the the bad 
woman got her comeuppance, but also our hero is doing the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's a really the weird iron, but place Kayla, to irony. On. Iron, isn't it ironic, Kayla? Like, I don't man. know if it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so it it sounds like we're being really down on this movie, but I do want to talk a little bit about the fact that it is a gorgeous movie. It is so fun to watch right up until literally the last five minutes of it. <laughs> and then if you just like embrace how dumb it is, you could still kind of have fun. There's some really cool practical effects. Mm-hmm. The whole movie is doing this like, I mean, not unfamiliar, but in this case, still very effective thing where the entire house is gloomy and lacking in color except for when there's blood it's bright red and just really just what am i trying to say like just by you by using a very neutral color scale like using like the red pops even more of like the red of the blood for the most part like that's not an unfamiliar tactic but it does work very well here and like the mummies or crumbly mummies are cool i didn't if i like if you get to the place where you just embrace like what a dumb, silly ending, but I'm going to have a good time with it. I, it could be really fun. I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's, I, like I said, having not read the book for four years and rewatching it, I enjoyed it much more this time. I was still a little disappointed when it ended because I forgot how abrupt it was because I still had that same feeling of like, ah, now we're going to get to it, whatever it is. But I can definitely also see a lot of the a lot of the seedlings of the coming vampire craze here in films, like just the vibe of the, the, the lighting and the cinematography and the music. It honestly, and this is going to sound like such an insult, but I promise it's not. It reminded me a lot of the queen of the damned starring Aaliyah, which was one of my like all time when I was a a lonely goth, like preteen. I love that movie. And obviously rewatching it is a terrible terrible movie but like you can see the influence from this like very strange goth music video uh movie in i think in that movie in particular and then later in lots of other vampire media and i think that tony scott has that really distinct visual style from shooting music videos from shooting commercials he i think he has a really good eye for tapping into what the general public is interested in seeing and kind of finding a way to make that artistic and consumable at the same time right whether that be beautiful seductive but dangerous vampires or shirtless fighter pilots playing volleyball you know like (laughs) and i say that as a joke but it's actually not Uh, (laughs) the duality of man (laughs) yes yes oh i had another point but i lost it Uh, i mean yeah that just come kind of summarizes it pretty nicely um, would you like a brief section on how the author of this novel is totally nuts? Or uh, Oh my God, yes, please. <laughs> this has really nothing to do with the movie, but it's just a really interesting piece of trivia that I found out when I went on this journey a couple of years ago. I really enjoyed reading this novel. And so I was like, Whitley Strieber, good author. I'm going to look this up and see uh, what else he's written. And what I found out was that he has gone totally off the deep end since writing this and believes he's been abducted by aliens several times. He wrote this and a werewolf novel called The Wolfen in 1978. And then a couple of other horror novels and some short stories. 
And then in 1985 says that he was abducted from his cabin in upstate New York by non-human beings and then spent the next like 20 years arguing with libraries that his novel communion should be in the nonfiction section and not the fiction section. Wrote a bunch of other things about aliens. Oh, he lied about being on campus for the Whitman massacre, which was the shooting at the University of Texas where the man was positioned in the tower and picking people off. And then after he was called out on lying about it a lot, said that it was because aliens messed with his memories. And then later said that his latest book, Transformation, he had changed his mind. Oh, sorry. So he walked it back and said that aliens messed with his memory and that's why he thought he was there. But then in his other nonfiction book, Transformation, he changed his mind and decided he had in fact witnessed the shooting. Then after that, all of the stuff with the aliens. He claims he went to a hotel in 1998 and a weird man knocked on his door and he believes that this was God who explains to him the Holocaust, climate change, the afterlife, psychic ability, UFOs, and using the human soul in machines. He did not give him his name, so Struber refers to him as the master of the key. And then he wrote a sequel to The Hunger in the late 2000s because <laughs> apparently none of that was working out for him but he appears to be like fairly famous on like the obviously the on coast to coast am overnight radio show he's on that a lot which fits it looks like his novel communion was turned into a movie at one point and he's also a practicing catholic so uh, I mean, all, all this tells me, Kayla, is that th this is a good reminder that the hero's journey is a winding and eventful path. <laughs> yeah. So, um, movie crazy guy who wrote book even crazier. I think that about wraps it up on the hunger. Other I mean, than that, Catherine Deneuve is an icon. It's true. <laughs> I mean, I have a like a fun bit of trivia that does not involve aliens or that we know of. Uh, Willem Dafoe is in this movie as second photo booth youth. Oh, I meant yeah. to go back through and see him, but I just saw his name as the credits were rolling. I was, is that Willem Dafriend? And it I was. believe that this is. I believe this is his first film role. Actually, yes. So oh, beautiful. Very cool. What a wonderful guy. <laughs> I hope. But yeah, so. I this is currently available for streaming on the Criterion channel. It is also available to rent on Amazon Prime if you're interested. It's $2.99. Um, I would say that this is a good bottle of wine movie during this quarantine. Like honestly, everything's crazy right now. Have a glass of wine and just kind of sit back and enjoy the vibe. So you would let this film in, but only on a BYOB policy. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it would need to show some some ID, bring a snack. <laughs> so the second half of our double feature is the 1978 Irving Kirshner directed uh, movie, Eyes of Laura Mars. In a world of breathtaking models and the beautiful people, Academy Award winner Faye Dunaway is photographer Laura Mars. Her work, the subject of controversy. Tommy Lee Jones is Detective John Neville, intrigued by her photographs for his own reasons. These are police photographs. They are strictly our own material. They were never published anywhere at all. So my question is very simple. Why am I photographed so much like yours? That's right. 
somewhere between the sensations of high fashion and the precise form of her art, lies another dimension, unexplored, unexpected. Based on a story, and I didn't know this before we picked it, but fate based on a spec script uh, by john carpenter now it went through a lot of rewrites especially after barbara streisand was replaced with faye dunaway or well barbara streisand left and faye dunaway came in i know i have all kinds of bias when it comes to carpenter but it really shows and it's basically it's cited as like an american giallo film but also like a very early erotic thriller before, I mean, I don't need to go much longer. That's just, now I'm just starting to go through all of our talking points by myself. So Kayla, <laughs> Kayla, what did you think of Eyes of Laura Mars? So this was not a movie that I'd ever heard of before, which is crazy because uh, having gone through my film A buff rounds, uh, doing a lot of research on Faye Dunaway, I feel like it should have come up at some point, but it did not. It's her um, first movie after winning an, uh, an Oscar for Network. Yeah, and this to me kind of cements her as truly one of the greats. And I know that that's probably a crazy take to have because, I mean, I've seen other movies that she's in, but there is just something about the gravita that she's able to bring to the screen and the amount of interns hysteria and restraint that she brings to this role but overall, like, I loved this movie. I had no idea what to expect. I really didn't know much outside of the couple sentence description on Criterion. And I, I wouldn't say that I was surprised because obviously when you have this kind of pedigree attached to your film in writing and directing and acting, something should stick. But I found it to be an incredibly fascinating examination of, you know, a woman's place in a violent world. And this is the time when I feel like Hollywood was kind of cresting that first wave of really having gritty realism in films. Like it's after New Hollywood Prime, but before 80s summer blockbuster things. And I think it kind of is in that exact sweet spot where you get this perfect symphony of it's kind of a horror movie, it's kind of a sexy thriller, and it has powerhouse performances from uh, an established great and an up-and-coming great. And it just is exactly the kind of thing that you want to see. So... I don't know. I was a little more restrained in replying to your text about this because um, I am much cooler on this movie than you. Um, I think we're further up. Uh, what, no, no. I, 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 I like that because, I mean, we're often on the same page and I just, I, like, I'm looking forward to diving into this more um, because I feel like this movie very much has two halves and I think you can definitely tell where a lot of the rewriting comes in even before I knew that I didn't even know how many people were hired to uh, take another stab at the script until I was doing some like additional research yesterday and today Um, I think this movie really loses me in the second half and uh, I really like Faye Dunaway early like in the first half I think she's really good especially like when she's in when Laura Mars is in her element actually shooting the photography and stuff I like Faye Dunaway like really gives like that real presence she feels really confident and capable and but like just very human too especially in that first conversation with Tommy Lee Jones when he doesn't realize that she's Laura Mars but in the second half I I don't know 
quite where I'd put the blame for this, but I think she just has much less to do and just really like, I, it feels like she loses like all her agency or anything to do. And she's just kind of hysterical in the last latter half um, Mm -hmm. was my initial take on it. And I, yeah, like, and besides like, you know, the wildness of the ending, um, I think, Faye Dunaway just like Laura Laura Mars herself I thought gets lost in the second half Mm -hmm. I think that it definitely goes off the rails a little bit I agree with that and I think that that's a bit of a too many cooks in the kitchen kind of issue but also when I I think I watched it in the context of thinking of it as a, a true giallo film I guess and to me, that kind of seems in line with what happens in Chala films. That, that is um, that is very true. Like that is so that might be why I didn't react as harshly to it. Because okay, so for those who are not as familiar with the genre as we are, so Giallo is a style of Italian thriller, not necessarily horror movies, but very often are horror movies, based on basically cheap mystery novels that were called giallos because of the yellow color. So giallo literally just means yellow. And a lot of times these novels were just direct like Italian translations of American novels by like Agatha Christie, um, noir films. So there is a lot of noir elements in a giallo film usually. And it is something that horror um, auteurs like Dario Argento, um, Mario Bava, like that kind of director like kind of latched onto because it provides like a really interesting template for a story and then you can kind of throw in all this weird gore stuff if you want to because it is a murder mystery at the end of the day but a lot of giallos are usually focused either on very specifically a man who is trying to unravel a mystery and like maybe he has a lady friend maybe not but it's very much centered on him like being a man and trying to figure this out whereas the giallo films that are more centered on women usually have to do with some element of repressed sexuality or overt sexuality or something that is it basically it boils down to it's about a woman who either can't control herself when having sex or is too frigid to enjoy sex and i think that Laura Mars kind of has an interesting mix of those things because I definitely thought, and maybe in the original script, they were setting this up, that it was kind of setting her up to be like, the entire issue is that she is repressed. And so because she is expressing herself through her art, that she would end up being the killer because that seems like a very giallo twist to have it be like, oh, you were so unknowingly horny that you murdered everybody around you. I think that because Carpenter had his hands on it and because Carpenter generally knows how to make a more interesting female character than that, it gets a little bit more in depth than that. So early in the film, when like right, I guess not really right off the bat in the film when Laura is arriving at her photography opening, all of the reporters are in her face asking whether she thinks that she is harming society by depicting these violent images and encouraging people to copy them and all of the stuff, stuff that obviously as specifically as horror fans that we're used to fielding those kinds of questions and like justifying enjoyment of that art form. But the thing that I was thinking about a lot in these first couple of minutes is that when women make art that is violent or that looks violent, we are depicting the world around us and how the world treats us. And to me, that was the interesting part of this movie where you see her, you know, taking on the eyes of the killer, so to speak. But it's almost to me 
more interesting to think about how like women don't need to do that. Like I don't need to have psychic visions of the violence around me to like, quote unquote, inspire my art because everything that is happening around me to, you know, people of my gender, people who appear to be of my gender, like that is the violence that we know as a species and as a society. And when men depict this violence, they are visionary artists and pushing boundaries and yada yada. But when women do it, it is suddenly something to be policed. And I think that Laura's answers to all of these, you know, lurid and honestly offensive questions about the seriousness of her art kind of imply that, you know, she's had this thought. And later in the movie, when she's talking about how a lot of her art comes from, you know, visions that she's had, it leads me to wonder like what kind of experiences she's had and what kind of life that she's lived. And I would be so interested in having a little bit more of that in the latter half of the movie, because she does so immediately fall. Like once Neville is like, I'm interested in you. She's like, yes. (laughs) And it's a little bit jarring and it's definitely a studio being like, well, they have to fall in love. Right. (laughs) And, but like to see her you know, her art is violent and it is overtly sexual. And that is something that comes oftentimes from a lot of trauma and the heavy implication that her ex-husband was abusive to her and the, you know, explicit statement that he was an alcoholic. I think that there could have been so much interesting stuff to excavate there in like her take on sexuality, her take on violence and, you know, what and how that connects to her art. Yeah, that's and that that is a that is a much uh, more nuanced and I'd say like scholarly take on what I was trying to stumble through, which is like this movie has like interesting themes it's trying to dig into. Like I'm, I guess that's what really turned me off about the second half is that I really liked a lot of stuff about the first half, and then I mean, kind of paralleling what I said about the hunger, like the there like there are these themes that are driving ever like that are driving the story that are driving our main character, especially in the first half, and then once the like once the thriller part the giallo part like really ramps up like those are completely lost and they bear like they are (laughs) the the way they come like they the way that they come back in at the end is so rushed that you have you probably have to google what actually happened at the end at least i kind of did to be like is is this ending what i i think it was and i yeah it just i I appreciate your take because you are still like you are still giving a lot of credit and still taking a lot of value from that stuff that really works in the first half. Whereas I'm focusing maybe a little too much on the loss of it. Yeah. I think it's a totally fair criticism. And I definitely, (laughs) I guess when Neville is like crashing through the window, literally with a chair somehow from outside and she's just like, Oh my God, you're here. I'm like no that's bad like i don't know how you don't know that that's bad <laughs> like that well, he just did that and that's what like there's this and i think that is part of what part of what makes it really unsatisfying too is not getting i guess like maybe not getting closure but like the, so it asks like these questions and it poses these ideas and like we are like laura mars is our protagonist we're on her side but it feels like and paralleling the hunger at the end it's just summed up in a way where it's like okay like but why was he doing that you know right and like and yeah. what, like what does this movie think of laura mars herself like it's not even like it's supposed to, i don't think it's supposed to be ambiguous i think it's just not there it just doesn't answer anything at all about like the morality of what laura mars is doing i don't think like i'm sure like you could do a deep reading but i really think it just drops that i i I think if you're going to take up this idea 
uh, like this theme of how women like would put, integrate sex and violence into their work and how that differs from how men would do it and how society reacts to it. Irresponsible is maybe a strong word, but like to not f- have anything further on that, to just like leave it there and then have this woman be terrorized because of her work. Like I, it's clear who the good guys and the bad guys are, but like without anything else, like maybe I'm asking for something too explicit, but it's like, okay, like, well, this never would have happened if she hadn't done that. <laughs> like everyone think, she knows wouldn't have died. Yeah. And I think part of the problem with the ending too, is that it's so fast and that Neville's motives aren't even clear because it's all well and good to say, Oh, death is a sacred thing. So you shouldn't commercialize it or whatever, but also I love you too much. So I can't kill you. It's very strange. And so that is definitely a huge problem because I think that again, all of these things are beautifully set up and just ripe for the picking. And I would like to think that Carpenter's version explored those things further because I have to assume that that's where they came from because I feel like so many of his movies are kind of exploring that fear of the unknown, fear of, you know, being outside of societal norms, like that kind of messaging is very prominent throughout his filmography. And I don't know, I just... I, I didn't have to Google it because I, I kind of got the implication that he has multiple personalities or whatever. Right. I just thought like, it is. Is that what's there? It's, it, it's very confusing. And it is very much like there are two minutes of the movie left. He did it because his mom was a prostitute and that made him angry. Like, I don't know. And it's it so, split it's, his brain into most, multiple personalities and one is like, lashing out because of what happened to the other or like well, and this is all like our interpret like i don't know ascribing yeah. something to it to two de- yeah. sentences it's sadly it reminds me a lot of like in 50 shades of gray that's like the big explanation for like christian gray's trauma is that his mom was like a drug addict prostitute and that's why he is into bdsm or whatever and it kind of just makes me think of this <sighs> habit of you know, taking an adult man with trauma in like a piece of art, whether it's a novel or whatever, and foisting all of the responsibility for all of that onto a sing- onto a woman, and then none of the responsibility on him to like get therapy, work on it, not treat every woman he meets as if she is exactly the same as the one woman who treated him poorly, like that kind of thing. And I know that they just did not have the insight or thought to you know, dive that deep into it, but it does set up the interesting idea of like women kind of having to be rehabilitation centers for men in the end, because once Neville actually gets to know her, these two factions of his brain cannot reconcile the, you know, his, what he felt was his duty, which was to kill everyone around her and then her as punishment for selling these salacious images and disregarding the sanctity of death and violence and whatnot but she's also the woman that he's in love with and that he cares about and that he, you know, has now seen as a real human. And I think that it's a really interesting bent. Like when men have to view women as people, it can make it hard for them to continue to treat them like garbage. And obviously in this case, the treating like garbage includes um, murdering everybody around her. Um, Do we want to like, just say like, just for people who haven't seen this, what the ending is like, obviously we've been talking about elements of it, but like just to walk through like the actual steps of it. Yes. uh, Sure. So the ending of this movie is that Laura Mars 
had a driver who had been previously convicted of crimes and had been in jail and was perhaps mentally ill, again, not super clearly explained, that was in the building the day that like her closest friend was killed. And so the police clearly think that it's him. They're trying to pin it on him. He tries to escape because he is afraid of being taken in and stabs a cop and then ends up getting shot. And so Neville, the detective, goes back to her and is like, it's all over. We killed him. It's done. But while she's waiting for him to arrive at her apartment, she gets another vision of the killer in the elevator of her building, stabbing her ex-husband through the eye and killing him. And moments later, Neville crashes through the window (laughs) with a chair because she's locked the door and has been screaming at the killer to stay away from her, starts trying to explain, quote unquote, Tommy's story to her about his like deadbeat hooker mom and how his dad killed her in front of him, slips up, refers to it as like my, as I, like I did this. And she's like, oh my God, you said I. And then he chases her and he's about to kill her. And then he is stops himself stabs himself in the mirror yeah like he's killing his own other self and is saying like i love you too much to actually kill you so you have to kill me to get rid of him and she shoots him and calls the police it's happens all in the span of like four minutes it's very very fast very confusing and i mean it makes it i will like as you said like that's kind of how giallos do is they look great they sound great they have all kinds of color and gruesomeness and they don't make a lick of sense often um and uh i don't know it's kind of fitting considering like the the two like other genres that this movie is kind of connected to is like giallos led to slashers which have many of the same issues including those of like the twisted morale like like what it is what is what is this movie trying to say morally about our main character and like who's the who is getting punished and why uh, but also like the erotic thriller where it's like the two people who shouldn't get together get together and there's some kind of twisty ending where like one of them is often probably yeah. is that um, bad yeah it's like like and it's i guess like a lot makes like a lot of it makes sense and i that's why i find it like for as down as i am on like what feels like a really like really, it feels like they really botched the ending but like it is still very fascinating for many different reasons like where like for like where it stands in Faye Dunaway's career or where it stands in like this American take on the giallo which is influenced by Amer- like in turn influenced by American movies and in and, and American um media and then what like and just how it kind of presages the 80s which especially with um Brian De Palma is like the real one who, like who bridges the gap and starts off like the erotic thriller craze with Dress to Kill in 1980 which is like a giallo movie but also cited as like the dawn of the or like the um the kickoff the of the erotic thriller in American film and it feels like in a different universe maybe this is like the hit they're looking for and maybe we get started on like certain tropes in cinema much sooner than this as it happens it's like this weird this it's a curio, yeah. And it's definitely, I think, not the kind of movie that would be made today. That's for sure. It would, I think if it were made today, it would be much more of an explicit horror movie because I feel very much that there are only horror elements. It reminded me a lot of Argento films like Tenebrae or um, Deep Red that are more focused on the murder mystery aspect of it than the like horror elements of it, like Suspiria is. And I don't know. It's just, it's really interesting. And I think it's, like I again I really liked it I think that the shots in this 
are great. I was totally captivated by the scene where um, Faye Dunaway is attempting to explain how she sees through the eyes of the killer by showing Tommy Lee Jones, like, looking through a TV monitor at himself on a TV screen. Oh, yeah. That, oh, great man. section of the movie. Yeah. Like, it's just masterclass filmmaking. And, like, a lot of really interesting, just, like, quick smash cuts, like, when they're doing the photography and whatnot. The scene where they are in Columbus Circle and she is, you know, in that, like, really awesome double slide slit skirt, like, kneeling down with her camera and shooting this, like, total wreckage mayhem car crash thing it's like it's a mood i don't know this film like just definitely has like style and i can absolutely see why somebody as technically minded as george lucas would see this and be like that guy knows how to shoot a movie and he knows how to not be consumed by like uh like totally by the hollywood machine i can't say that he avoided it completely since obviously the ending of this movie was meddled with but i do think that his artistic vision is clear throughout in you know the cinematography and in the direction those photo shoot scenes especially the one of the fiery cars by the fountain but all the photo shoot scenes are really impressive not just in that like they're thrilling to watch but i think they really capture the the controversial lure in nature of her actual work in both like the like you like especially the appeal of it but also like why many people would be repulsed by that luridity yeah those those like those things are really good but also to me one thing that i really enjoyed about those is that it gives us the chance to see her as a serious artist to see her in her element as you know she is working she is putting effort into every aspect of this shoot to make sure that it is according to her vision and i think that that kind of helps to answer our question as to what the movie thinks of laura mars is that in the end, like she is a true professional artist and she believes in her work and she believes in the validity of it. And at the end of the day, that's the most important thing, I think. But I, I miss that Laura Mars. Not that I need her to be like, you know, the capable badass who doesn't let anything get to her. But um, I, it is really satisfying to see her be this like confident professional in that photo shoot setting. And it just, especially since Faye Dunaway is at least from what I've read, you know much more about her than I do, is, like, portrayed as being prone to playing, like, hysterics? Am am I, like, have I read that correctly? So, yes, but the way that she plays a lot of these roles is very controlled. So the number one thing about Faye Dunaway is that she takes her work as an actress very seriously. She has a lot of ideas and opinions on how she should be shot, how she should react to screenplays. She has been given the difficult woman label by almost every person she's ever worked with. I think even on this film had a contentious relationship with the, the writers and the producers of the film, just because she is an artist and she takes things very seriously. So I can see what would have attracted her to this role. And I don't, I think that for somebody, and this is total spitballing, obviously I don't know her and I don't know anything about her personally, but to me, it seems like it makes sense that for somebody so controlling and precise about her image. And I don't mean those words in a negative way at all. I think that that's a really good way to be as a serious artist. It makes sense to me that it would be appealing to kind of play somebody who is constantly losing control or somebody who is dangerous in a way so that you can kind of, you know, escape the version of yourself that you've created and just kind of be crazy on screen for a little while. Yeah, and that's the uh, tug of war. Like, I already had the tug of war in my brain of like, okay, I don't love how she's like in in the second half, how it's going. And 
I don't, I'm like, I don't know that it's totally Faye Dunaway's fault because like they don't ask her to do much more than be hysterical in the second half. I do like her in some of the scenes with Tommy Lee Jones, even though I don't really think they have any chemistry. Um, yeah. <laughs> doesn't, the, the, the sex scene is so silly. Whereas like the hunger sex scene is like, it seems weirdly like well not weirdly when you read that like they had to fight an x rating but almost um resistant to actually like being actually sexual if that makes sense it's more mm-hmm. like um rest- i can't qu- quite find the right word but it feels like it's much more restrained than it should be but it still looks really good and this one is just it just feels so silly because those two I think a huge part of the problem too, and I was thinking this a lot throughout the movie, is that like men in the 70s just didn't look right. Like they didn't know how to dress. They didn't know how to cut their hair. Like there are a couple of outfits in this movie that Laura wears that are straight up like I would go to the store tomorrow and buy that outfit that she's wearing on Columbus Circle with like the skirt and the like tie shirt and the high boots. Like I'd wear that tomorrow. But every single dude in this movie looks like a fucking doofus. (laughs) Like just I don't know if that's just like an issue with the 70s. And I don't know. Like, it is what it is, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they do not have a lot of chemistry. But <laughs> I don't know. Uh, overall, I think that's pretty much everything that I have to say about this movie. I, I, I'm glad that we had different opinions about it because it's obviously really interesting to discuss uh, whenever we do. It's very, it's very unusual. <laughs> but I think that, again, it kind of circles back to our eternal, like, you can take what you want out of a piece of art and continue to, you know, search for a meaning in it and find your own thing that's interesting about it. We just kind of stumbled into this as our first double feature, uh, but ended up having a lot more parallels than I expected and not even like thematically, just in like the, like what happened with the making of these movies really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but still like both, like I both unsatisfying in certain ways uh, at least for me <laughs> um but still like both value like i would be i would gladly rewatch either of them really just because they look really good and the performances for the most part are really good i really like supporting i like i really love brad duroff as the driver in eyes of laura mars it is like one of his earliest roles like not long after he's introduced in um one flew over the cuckoo's nest yeah just re- like really fun watches for most of their runtime and then just Actual endings ending yeah <laughs> And so that concludes our first Criterion double feature. Uh, We'll be back next month with, firstly, our May recently watched episode, which is a little, our our, uh, also monthly short episode on just a couple things we've watched recently, often allowing us to go outside the Criterion channel. But more importantly, we will be back with our next Criterion double feature, which is In the Mood for Love and Black Narcissus, both of which are streaming on the Criterion channel. So we look forward to discussing those two movies, uh, neither of which I've seen, and we'll talk to you all again next month. Yeah. And if you need to talk to us before next month, there oh, yeah. are several ways that you can do that. I was like, wait, you I'm forgetting something. <laughs> you can email us at ltrfipod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us on Twitter at ltrfipod. You can follow us on Instagram to view our sometimes used Instagram stories, which is also at ltrfipod. And finally, if you are interested in contributing financially to our Zoom membership that we have to purchase now to do podcasting because of coronavirus, you can sign up for Patreon tiers as low as $1 on patreon.com slash ltrfipod. We appreciate everybody who is already a patron. Uh, We 
could not have purchased this Criterion Channel subscription without you. I mean, I guess technically we could have, but we wouldn't have. <laughs> so uh, your money is hard at work. And I hope that you enjoyed the series. If you have comments, you can feel free to rate, review, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, on iTunes and uh, other places that you can do that. <laughs> and yeah, uh, as always, Criterion is cool. <laughs>thank you for listening to let the right films in once again uh, i i oh i didn't come up with a fun joke oh uh, well we'll have to forge forward without a joke a podcast about um i don't know gruesome like a sex with murderers i think that tracks it's a podcast Is about sex with murderers today today that's what it's about i guess it is yeah that's the best we're gonna do so we're gonna stick with all right, that'll be the intro to the podcast. I it. <laughs> Let's maybe try that again. Yep, yep. I just... think when introducing a new miniseries, we should perhaps introduce it as that miniseries and not as a joke. Right, and I'm also uh, trying to keep in mind, uh, it's one thing to uh, be like, I'll just edit that together later when I'm doing the all the editing, but it's kind of mean to Landon to be like, all right, just make it, turn that into something not embarrassing, Landon, please. Um, okay. um, Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Was that a ghost in her Zoom meeting? <laughs> um, new All plan, right, Landon. Un- yeah, no, new plan, Landon. Unmute every ten minutes to make a spooky noise. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Please don't do that. <laughs> anyway, welcome to our very serious new chapter in which we discuss <laughs> film and art on the Criterion Channel.